And thanks, Bruce, for Irish Voice. And now it's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, my favourite science show, here on Community Radio 2 X 98.3 FM. And now we're going to kick off with some news in science, some hot science stories, and this day in science, as we often like to do. But in a few minutes later after that, we will be joined by the head of the John Curtin School of Medical Research, and we'll be talking about breakthroughs in science. In fact... Not long at all. On the 6th of March 1937, Soviet cosmonaut was the first woman to fly in space, and the only solo woman. She had worked on uh, tyre and textile factories, and she was selected in 1961 as a cosmonaut for her expert skill in parachuting. She trained in a special woman in space program and was only one of four women participants to complete a space mission. She was launched in Vostok 6 on the 16th of June 1963, two days after Valerie Bikovsky on the Vostok 5, and uh, Tereshkova made 48 orbits of Earth in 71 hours, and the first two cosmos landed on the same day on the 19th of June. And Tereshkova left the program shortly after her return, and she was honoured with the title of Hero of the Soviet Union and she went into space two decades before the first American woman, Sally Ride. And we're sitting in the studio here. I don't have smallpox, I don't have tuberculosis and the risk of life-threatening infection is really not all that great. Now, a lot of that is down to the inspired work of scientists, of someone who had an idea about how they could make the human condition better in some way, but not only did they have that idea, they were able to take it and transform it into something that would be usable in the lives of everyday people. And it's research centres like the John Curtin School of Medical Research that make that sort of thing possible, and I'm very pleased to invite and welcome into the studio, Professor Giulio Licinio, who is the director of John Curtin. Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and uh, in the studio with me to help us out with duties today, Pallavi Jane. Good morning, Pallavi. Good morning, Rod. <laughs> now, uh, Giulio, I am well acquainted with a lot of the work of uh, John Curtin because uh, I have had quite a few guests from uh, John Curtin on to Fuzzy Logic, and it's a great uh, pleasure and a great honour to talk to people from John Curtin. So what brings you into John Curtin? It was a, a wonderful opportunity uh, to direct a research institute that's dedicated to uh, various areas of science. My own work I focused uh, mostly on depression and obesity and I was working in the Department of Mental Health and I thought it was just a fantastic opportunity to come to Australia and also to oversee research in different areas. So what are the main activities going on in John Curtin? Yeah, the areas that are strongest there are immunology and uh, the related field of like pathogens, uh, neuroscience, genetics, uh, what we call translational medicine and structural biology, trying to understand how to bring you know, discovery from, from the bench to the bedside. Oh, we'll get into translational medicine a little bit later on in the mm -hmm. show, but uh, are there any things particularly stand out for you? I mean, what, what, what's getting a lot of attention at the moment? I think specifically there are, it's the need to discover new treatments, so that's what everybody is searching for. So in the United States now, the National Institutes of Health is setting up a whole new national center for uh, translational science 
with the idea to come up with new medications, new treatments. That's what everybody's seeking. So is that about the treatments themselves or is it about the process of making those treatments available? It's both. And uh, because we have had in the last 20 years really an explosion of new discovery and new research and new findings in basic science, basic biology, but that has not translated into new treatments. So that's why people are very eager to develop new pathways and new platform for, for translation. So in your own journey into, uh, do you want me to call it John Curtin or JC? It's too many. Too yeah, many JCSMR. <laughs> it took me a year to be able to say those initials without stumbling. <laughs> so, so John Curtin, I think, is easier. Oh, well, we'll just say that for shorthand then. Yes. So what was it that, that, I mean, your own background in studying obesity and depression and so on, but uh, prior to that you have quite a, a history. You've come from um, Yale, Cornell, and the University of Miami. And what, yes. what sort of things did you research or focus on in those places? It was essentially the same line of work, uh, looking at the uh, basic biology and genetics of both depression and obesity. And more recently, uh, what we call pharmacogenetics, trying to understand why some people get treated and get better and uh, get well, and other people get the same treatments and nothing happens to them. Ah, so you mean we're, we all vary on how we respond to pharmaceuticals? Is that, yes, is that yes, it? yes, yes. And is that's what's the main thing there? Is it our genetics that's doing that? Is it our environment? Is it what? It's a combination of both. What we are studying now is the genetics, but it's not only the genetics, but the genetics plays a, plays a very important role. Do we know why? Apparently, different people respond to different drugs because the way that their receptors in the body and their transporter systems is shaped by their genes is different. And understanding how some drugs work in some genetic makeups and they don't work in others, that's kind of the big puzzle now. So uh, I imagine that diversity of genetics is uh, the evolutionary way of having um, like a spread of solutions to different environments and different people. So like yesterday I was listening to a show on the ABC Radio National All in the Mind and they were talking about how some people respond to really bitter tastes, they call them super tasters, yes, yes. and other people who are much less responsive to, or less sensitive to, yes. to tastes. And so is it, it, this diversity of responses to things, is, is that an evolutionary advantage for humans? Yes, because you have to have uh, diversity in the species because if something happens, if a path, you don't know what the next thing that's going to hit you. could be starvation, could be drought, could be a, a new disease. So if everybody is susceptible to it, then the whole community would die. So if people have different levels of susceptibility to different things, then when things strike, some will perish, but some will survive and will keep the group going. And, and is that the key reason why people respond differently to different pharmaceuticals? Probably, yes, yes. So how do you connect a, a drug response to a particular gene or genotype or gene sequence? Yeah, we, we don't very well right now. For a few drugs, we can do that, but uh, the goal of the research is to make that connection to be able, let's say, in the future to read the person's genetic profile and to say, okay, based on your genes, we think you will not respond to this treatment, but you will respond to the next one, and vice versa. So um, we have right now, in many cases, multiple ways to treat the same thing, but we don't know before we give the drug which treatment to use for which person, and that's what pharmacogenomics is trying to address. Uh, uh, Professor, do you think that something like th this could be really helpful uh, while treating cancer? Because uh, that, yes. that's a disease that has eluded human beings for long now. Yes, and cancer, I think, is one of the um, 
it's not one of the, I think it's the biggest targets for pharmacogenetics because, as you know, some people take cancer treatments and they respond uh, very well and they, they go to achieve total cures. Even the cancers that have very low prognosis, people say, oh, 80% of people don't respond to this treatment, but 20% do. And the problem with cancer is that if you don't respond to a certain treatment, then you die. So sometimes there is not the opportunity to go back and do something different. So I think cancer is particularly important, and we have to understand, yes, we need new cures and we have to find new treatments, but we have to understand why current treatments work for some people and not for others, and then optimize that. Can you see a future where, if I go in for some medical treatment, that my genetic makeup is tested and profiled in some way as part of my the normal course? Oh, I really won't want to see that future very soon. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I hope to come to us in a few years, mm-hmm. but that's the goal. How, how far away is that? I think for some drugs and for some types of uh, problems, it could be happening almost like now. So we know already which genes uh, regulate the metabolism of the drugs. So some people break uh, most drugs very quickly, and they don't seem to be affected by them at all, so they need much higher doses than normal. And then other people um, break the drugs very slowly, so the drugs build up in their system, and they are called hypersensitive or difficult patients, and they complain all the time about the smallest thing. But it's really not like a psychological thing. It's because they the drugs accumulate in their systems very quickly. So that we can determine right now, and it's one of the biggest puzzles for me as to why that has not passed to the clinic. Because we have the information, we have the tests, people could be tested for that, like, you know, today. Okay, well, we might break to a quick track. This is Fat Boy Slim and The Journey here on Fuzzy Logic Community Radio 2XX. My name is Rod, and special guest today, Dr. Oh, Dr. Professor? Yes. <laughs> have to call you the right thing. <laughs> Julia Lucinio from Jerton, John Curtin, Jerton. John Curtin School of Medical Research, and Pallavi also helping me on duties today. Here's Fat Boy Slim. <laughs> And it seems appropriate that that song is by Fat Boy Slim because we are talking to Professor Julio Licinio from John Curtin School of Medical Research this morning here on Fuzzy Logic. And his personal area of research of interest has been the relationship between depression and obesity. Now, we're going to come back to that, but most Canberrans will well know the name Professor Frank Fenner, and uh, he died not very long ago, and he was a great Australian and a great contributor to Australian science and made a big difference. Now, just eradicating rabbits or helping to eradicate rabbits, if you want to put a dollar figure on that, can you imagine how much controlling the rabbit population would do for the Australian economy? So he had seminal work on myxomatosis and the co-evolution of the virus and the rabbit, and also on smallpox. Now, Professor Giulio here um, actually knows or knew Frank to some extent and uh, has some personal stories about Frank. So what is your remembering of Frank, Giulio? Well, I'll begin from the end, which is that um, I go driving to John Curtin School every single day and I've never seen any rabbits. So Professor uh, Fenner died in the morning. In the afternoon, there were three rabbits, like, hopping right on our uh, stairway. (laughs) And I think they were rejoicing that their biggest enemy was no longer around us. (laughs) So um, that was just like a simple anecdote. But I I began at John Curtin in 2009, and Professor uh, Fenner had a very illustrious career there, including being a former director. 
and he came to visit us many times so he gave me uh, a lot of advice about his uh, experience working in science and his um, background with John Curtin and I decided to organize a tribute uh, to him which took place on November uh, the 1st and the 2nd of November it was an international conference on translational medicine that I put together and I brought, brought experts from all over the world, including the principal from Imperial College in London, the Dean of Medicine from Oxford University, and many other uh, notable people. And then at the beginning of the conference, I gave a, a brief summary of a Professor Fenner's life and career, including the history of the eradication of smallpox. And at the end of that, everybody uh, gave a standing ovation and was the last tribute that he had while he was alive. And in that same meeting in the evening, we had a reception at the National Portrait Gallery that Professor Fenner attended with many others. And, of course, his portrait is there. So it was a very uh, touching moment. And interestingly, uh, Sir Gus Nossel, whose portrait is next to Professor Fenner, was also there. And Fenner at some point poked at his friend and said, my portrait is much better than yours. <laughs> and it is. So um, it was like... A with and then he left the, the reception right after that. So... His last interaction with the scientific community was full of life and even humor. Uh, so he was a very genuine sort of person, yeah? Yes. And made a, made a substantial contribution to Australia. So he, he worked on the myxomatosis virus. Uh, that must have been a fairly challenging piece of work. Was it very controversial? I mean, the idea of bringing a pathogen from another environment into Australia, certainly our experience with things like the cane toad has been pretty bleak. Do you know if that gave him much trouble? It did, and people were very reluctant to start it. And at that same point, there was uh, some epidemic of encephalitis in northern Australia, and people were questioning if the myxoma virus could cause that. So to prove that it was not the case, he and two other uh, very notable Australian scientists injected themselves with the myxoma virus to prove it was safe to people. And then only after that, they got permission to give it to the rabbit population. And one thing that I only learned recently, because the idea is that, yes, it killed the rabbits back then, but then they came back, and it doesn't do anything today. But that's not true. To this day, 40% of the rabbits that are born die because of the myxoma virus. So whatever rabbit problem is here in Australia now is much smaller than it would have been if myxoma was not uh, prevalent amongst the rabbits. Oh, yes, I've seen those footage of uh, 1930s or somewhere yes. like that and there's this farmer's paddock and it's just swarming with rabbits and the amount of damage they can do is incredible. And so th this is an interesting uh, sideline in the history of science is people who experiment on themselves. Yes. So I, I guess it kind of traps the, or taps into the translational medicine side because what he was trying to do there, I think, was demonstrate the risk or, or the, the low risk to human health of uh, a study. Now, is risk really a large part of what it takes or what, what the barriers are to taking a, a scientific breakthrough and making it real in, in the field of medicine? Yes, and it's a very difficult balance between um, the issue of risk and the consequence of risk which have been over the years a tremendous amount of regulation. So if you try now uh, to give something to a human, the amount of regulatory uh, barriers that you have to face are tremendous. I had a patient actually who had a genetic defect that caused very severe obesity. There were four people in the same family with the same defect, and three adults and one child. And it took us over, that was in, when I was working at University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA in the States, but I mean it was not a problem for UCLA, it's like that everywhere in the country. 
and with the National Food and Drug Administration as well, but to be able to give that experimental treatment took over a year and a half of paperwork, and in that process, uh, the youngest patient, the girl, died. So um, sometimes there have been cases that people have been treated with experimental things that, you know, don't work so well and can have adverse reactions. But then sometimes if we withhold uh, life-saving treatments too long, you can have the opposite problem. Yes, I see this with um, public resistance to things like inoculations or vaccinations. Yes. And I'm reminded of the story of the policeman who was suffering from an infection in a hospital during World War Two, and was it Flory, the Australian yes, yes, scientist, yes. who gave him penicillin? Yes. Uh, now, today, the, the turnaround time for a similar treatment would be months or weeks? Years. Years. Years, yes, of course, years. Now, is the public understanding of risk a bit skewed? Because I think a lot of the media like to play up on something goes wrong and there's the mad scientist with a white lab coat and they launch some cure, inverted commas mm. on somebody, and it all goes horribly wrong. I think it is, and I think people always fail to take into account how many lives and people have been saved by the same intervention. So you don't see the lives that have been saved, so you gave the example of vaccines. You give a vaccine, a lot of people don't have a disease, but you don't know about those. You don't see those. So people don't take the number of people who would have had the disease and how bad the disease could have been, and then you counteract that with the one or two people who had the, pro who had the problem. So I think the success uh, stories go untold, and the failures become very uh, visible, and that's part of the problem. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, it's difficult to shake people's perceptions as well because I, I'm reminded of uh, the guy who, uh, uh, you know, regarding ulcers in the stomach. A couple of years back, he, ha he I think... Uh, oh, Barry, uh, yeah, Barry Marshall? Yeah, yes. I think he took yeah. uh, bacteria or virus. I'm yes. getting confused which one was it. But Bacterium he said that uh, that ulcers are not just caused because of stress or anything, but, you know, there's a bacteria or a virus, a pathogen which is responsible for it. And I think he had to drink something or, you know, in order to prove yeah, he it. He even, in deliberately mm, infected himself yeah, with yeah. the helicobacter... Mm -hmm. uh, bacteria and then gave himself a, an antibiotic to treat it and he actually got the ulcer and then the ulcer went away. Yes. Yeah, so we, we should do a whole fuzzy theme one day on scientists who have experimented on themselves because it's actually a fascinating history. Yes. Do you, do you, can you think of any others, Julia, that you know where, where that sort of thing has happened? You know, with new treatments I'm, I'm not so sure but when I first went to work in the United States in 84, I went to University of Chicago my former boss, uh, Kenneth Polonsky, who is now the dean, of the dean of the School of Medicine at the University of Chicago, he had these studies on uh, diabetes production and insulin, and he would either test normal volunteers and compare them with people with diabetes. And he always enrolled himself in the studies. So his blood would be taken, whatever he would give to stimulate insulin, he would get it. But he would go through the proper procedures. He would enroll himself as a normal volunteer and go through the screening process and then be studied along with the patients. Well, uh, Pallavi here, her home country is India, and a fairly controversial thing that's happening now is the use of non-Western countries to test medicines. Yes. Uh, yeah. Is that something you're seeing much of? Yes, because the cost is much lower. In the United States specifically, where I lived for 25 years, the cost is very high, and it's a very litigious society, so you have to pay a lot of lawyers, have a lot of insurance, and the cost of the facilities is also extremely high. So in the end, the cost of a trial, let's say if you're going to study 100 people in the United States with a drug and the same 100 people in India, 
the overall overhead is so much lower in India that it makes financial sense to do the studies there. Yes, a friend of mine went to Miami and he looked through the phone book and he said the number of lawyers in the phone book <laughs> was more than just about any other profession that was there. Yeah. It's just something is a, it doesn't seem quite right. Do, do you have a take on this, Pallavi? Uh, yeah, and I, I just think that a lot of times people, uh, uh, you know, they are skeptical of new medicines or, you know, they, they have a very cynical view of science while uh, very often people forget that, you know, science has given us so much. I mean, uh, you know, even things like you know, uh, simple like uh, antibiotics, or even today you can take. You know, you have a headache, you can just pop a pill and uh, uh, you know just forget about it. So I think, uh, I mean, generally people, you know, th- there are some people, especially you know, like in places like India, and I'm sure in many other places, people are generally skeptical of medicines in general, uh, and uh, you know, and therefore they rely on alternative medicines, or they feel that you know maybe they are naturalists and stuff like that. Uh, but I think uh, it, it's high time that people recognize that so much science has given us so much and uh, you know people would die of cough and cold like four five hundred years back we're almost like the petulant yeah. child aren't we yes uh and we are very spoiled like i was born in 1958 so when i was a small child like seven eight nine years old all of these childhood diseases for which there are vaccines now i would have the disease and then the vaccine would come like six months later <laughs> so i had every single of those diseases and bad case of them mumps measles german measles uh rubella Every single disease that's in this multiple vaccine that the children take, even hepatitis A, I had everything. And I was for months in bed with each one of them and each one a, a bad case of. So you, you raise children now. They don't have anything. They don't, have, they don't even know what these diseases are. And we just take it for granted that they don't exist. But they have been around. And if we don't take the vaccines, they come back. Yeah, it's interesting, Pallavi, too. You make that comment that we expect something to come uh, in a pill bottle, uh, and, <laughs> and it's going to be that easy. Uh, yeah, and and then there's this another skewed notion that somehow uh, you know that uh, your immunity builds up. You know, if you if you don't take medicine and if you expose yourself to too much risk. But uh, one of my uncles, he's a doctor, and he said that it it doesn't work like that because uh, if if your body is you know uh, is going to be infected with pathogens all the time, it is going to take its toll later in life. And uh, and maybe out of hundred people, ninety survive. You know, who catch a, a disease, but ten die. So it's it's a question of you're basically trying to improve human condition and uh, bring down the probability of people who are going to die. So, you know, it's, it's a bit weird that, uh, that people would do, should hold such views. But I think it's, I think basically a lack of communication, I think, between what science really is and what people perceive of it. Yes, and I, and I wrote a Canberra Times story a, a year or so ago about my chicken and I was researching the, the variety of, of bacteria in the gut uh, it was like 700 different types of bacteria and it's a really rich ecology and when you go and hit the whole thing with this shotgun of an antibiotic you're not just hitting the ones that you want to take out yeah. but you're upsetting the whole balance inside the stomach yes. this idea of the quick fix too really applies to our problems in current society as we like to talk about it of obesity and weight and Will might play a track and when we come back let's have a look at obesity and depression here on Fuzzy Logic. My name is Rod and our special guest today Professor Julio Licinio, Head of the John Curtin School of Medical Research and Pallavi Jane and he is Sand in My Shoes by Dito. And that's Dito here on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show 
your science on a Sunday and we're talking to Professor Giulio Licinio who's the director of the John Curtin School of Medical Research. My name is Rod and helping me with duties today, Pallavi Jane. Now um, we were talking about the quick fix earlier, um, Giulio, and uh, how our modern perception is that uh, we have a medical problem of some sort and then I can just take a pill or I can just do this or that and the next day I'm going to be all good. Is that not a realistic approach to uh, tackling obesity? It's not because obesity is dependent on two behaviors, which is uh, what we call ingestive behavior, which is the amount of food that you put in your mouth, and uh, energy expenditure, which is how much energy you spend. And both of those you have to control yourself. There is no tablet or drug or anything that's going to make you spend a lot of energy unless you get out of your chair and actually move your body into something and even limiting the amount of food that you put in your mouth yes the drugs can decrease your appetite but it's really you in the end who makes the determination of how much you eat and what you eat so it's, it's a budget what goes in has got magic a match what goes out yes, <laughs> in a sense yes. so what you what you buy and what you spend yes. uh, otherwise you accumulate now Last week on the ABC Radio National, they have a program called Counterpoint, and their their topic then was on obesity. And the the guest there was saying that the obesity ec- epidemic is a little overblown; that that the health impacts aren't as bad as commonly stated. Is that your perception of it? I don't think it's overblown. I think that the the health uh, impact is bad. It's not uniformly bad so some people gain weight and they don't uh, become diabetic or don't have hypertension and don't have high cholesterol but most many people do so I think that the number of people today who are on antihypertensive meds because they are overweight and therefore hypertensive and people who are having diabetes problems is really uh, very high and that number could be much much lower if we didn't have the obesity problem so yes, could you be just a jolly uh, fat person without any health problems? Yes, and there are many of those around. But there are many more others who pay a terrible toll because of their obesity. Uh, also, Professor, uh, how important is it to know what you're eating rather? Because I, I know a lot of people, especially with uh, you know women, I mean, they, they think that just eating less is the solution. But um, many times then, uh, you know, nutrition becomes a problem. So is it also very important that... It, it's not just the quantity, but what you're eating as well? I think that the uh, quality of your, what you're eating is very important. And, of course, if you eat uh, very calorie-dense foods, you, you will gain weight. But the issue of quantity is also there. So some people forget that what's called diet food is not calorie-free. So it does have uh, some amounts of calorie, and it may be reduced, but it's there. So if you compensate by eating like, like, let's say, 10 slices of uh, reduced calorie bread instead of a two slice of regular bread, then you're going to gain the weight anyway. So I think it's a balance between the quantity and the quality of the food. Yes, and I saw an interesting experiment done on the uh, television the other day, and in that they had a bunch of footballers, and they broke the footballers into two groups. One had the low calorie, uh, the, the low sugar soft drinks, and the other ones had the full sugar soft drinks, and then they measured how many calories... Oh, they were able to eat then whatever they wanted off the plates after mm-hmm. that. And the people who had the low-calorie drinks actually ate more afterwards because somehow their body had sensed the number of calories or the, or the sweetness had triggered 
uh, their, their appetite in some way. There is a big debate now as to whether uh, this uh, zero calorie or diet drinks actually make you hungrier. So, and then you compensate by eating more, and in the end, you may even gain weight. So, that's a, a matter of current investigation. So, they don't, they're not as harmless as they appear to be because, yes, you don't gain weight from drinking that specific drink, but then what you're going to eat afterwards becomes a, a, a big question. Do you, to what extent do you think this is also a cultural thing too? Because I, I, I believe that in some cultures that having uh, a, a happy fat and jolly was the term you use, I like that, or the round uh, fat kid uh, is a sign of wealth. And But in our society, you know, we, we really value the, the slim, muscular body. So to what extent do you see this as just a cultural thing about our body image? I think that culture plays a very important role. So before moving to Australia, the last 10 years, I lived for seven years in Los Angeles and more specifically in Beverly Hills and then in Miami in Coconut Grove that are both kind of um, fashionable areas where people like to show off their bodies and you just don't see obesity in the streets. And then you go to some more rural or more um, like lower income parts of the U.S. and the people are just huge. It's just so shocking to think that you're in the same country and it would be like the equivalent from going to like, you know, Bondi Beach in Sydney and going way to uh, a western suburb. And the socioeconomic differences, even within a city, can be very dramatic and the shapes of the people vary accordingly. Mm. Well, as a muscular tan type, you know, I'm a good thing when rated because I don't want to get a bit mobbed by people who get overexcited by seeing my form. What's your own approach to this research? Um, we try to look at the interface. We study both depression by itself, obesity by itself, but we also look at the interface between the two and trying to understand if depression contributes to obesity, if obesity contributes to depression, or if they could both be caused by the same thing. And what might that other thing be? We think that chronic stress can uh, contribute to both obesity and depression at the same time. And I think that the bigger association is between people being depressed and then overeating because of that and becoming obese. And I think to a much smaller extent, there are people who are not depressed at all to begin with. They become obese. And then as they are uh, fat, they start to feel have low self-esteem and feel bad about themselves. And then that goes into depression. But I think that's a smaller number. I think the most common pathway is the opposite, is people being kind of uh, feeling bad about themselves to begin with and then compensating that through food. Um, well, talking about diets and cures and that kind of stuff, my perception of people going on diets is a lot of the time the diet seems to be almost about guilt and, and, and the diet is a form of punishment. And then there's this rebound reaction where they respond by eating more because they're now feeling guilty, they're feeling bad. And so it's not treating the depression. It's, is, no. it, is it treating the wrong cause then? Is that what's going I on? I think it is. And I think people who have both that you need to address a depression right away. Otherwise, exactly what you described happens, that people, they can be very well-intentioned, they start on a diet, and then the feelings of depression get really overwhelming, and at some point that kind of uh, just overrides everything else, and they just go and splurge and eat a lot. So what's your attitude to the modern craze for diets? I think that the, the diet itself is not the biggest uh, issue. I think it's the, the real v very... To lose weight, you have to be really committed at a very deep level. 
then I think whatever diet you use, the diet's just a tool. It's like, you know, you want to go from point A, you're here in downtown Canberra, and you want to go to the south side. If you really want to go there, you'll get there. You walk, you take the bus, you ask for a lift, you find a way to get there. If you're not sure if you really want to go there, you just wander around and you never get any place. So I see the diet more as like as a mode of transportation to go from point A to point B. It doesn't matter so much which one you take. As long as you really want to go to point B, you end up getting there. Uh, well, our own scientific research of fuzzy logic listeners, they're all trim and uh, terrific bodies, but what recommendation would you have to someone who was concerned about their weight? I think it's very nice to dream of a, a nice body and to have, which is like an ideal, and to have a, a dream is always like a motivating factor. But you have to understand that it's going to be like a lot of hard work. It's like, let's say, if you think about school, someone who is beginning university or beginning high school, and they want to get the highest grades and be the top of the class, it's nice to have that dream, but if they don't open a book and if they don't sit in class and pay attention, if they don't study, nothing's going to happen. So, yes, it's a very nice dream to have, but you have to understand it's going to be a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hard work, and a lot of deprivation of things that you like to do. And do you really want to go through that? Um, uh, one question I had that uh, when we talk about culture, is it uh, is it also important to let people know what what uh, what one means by you know when a person is fat or obese and that really that the that there is nothing such as a perfect body shape and that you know it may vary and you know you can't really fit parameters to beauty because uh, isn't there a possibility that you know people who may not be obese they might be slightly overweight may then get depressed because they may not match up to certain expectations or you know like because people have different body shapes and then in turn eat more so instead of I mean normal people who are not really you know fat but maybe slightly overweight it becomes a more chronic problem because of the environment and that's absolutely true and that can also put especially uh, adolescent uh, kids uh, mostly girls uh, straight into anorexia because they see these ideals of uh, very skinny body beauty and then they go on dieting and that's usually what triggers anorexia are girls who are slightly chubby to begin with but who are not obese are not in health risk and would not need anything but they they don't really meet these uh, standards of beauty that we have now then they start these uh, very stringent diets and it just gets out of control and spirals all the way to anorexia so you are correcting that I think that there, the two, there are two different problems there are people who are really fat and overweight and need to lose weight mm-hmm. for medical reasons mm-hmm. but then there are people who are just a little chubby or not ideally uh, shaped but are not you know fat are not you know don't have any really big medical problems because of the way that they are and they feel bad about themselves that they don't meet our very crazy and skinny ideal of beauty and then they they go into depression they sometimes go into substance abuse they go into binge eating bulimia and or anorexia what what's your attitude to medical interventions in obesity such as gastric banding or drug treatments or other forms of therapy I have very mixed feelings because I think that um, you really have to maximize trying to lose the weight on your own I think that initially I had a very anti-gastric bending and uh, kind of a surgical approaches but realistically if someone is like because of their obesity they've become diabetic let's say and hypertensive 
and are just like a, a heart attack waiting to happen, and they just cannot lose the weight on their own, at that point I think that gastric intervention is advisable. But some people, they're really on the borderline of obesity, and some people even gain weight on purpose just to meet the criteria for gastric bending, and then they have it. So I think that that's not advisable. Oh, interesting. Uh, it just goes to show what complex beings we humans are. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in the, in the Canberra Times in the last couple of weeks have been stories about a therapy called deep brain stimulation, yes. which involves uh, inserting electrodes into the brain. Well, there are two types. One, they don't really insert the electrodes. They put your head in a machine that sends this uh, stimulation through the skull and affects the brain, and that's not been shown to cause any really um, long-term side effects. So I'm not saying that I would endorse it for obesity, but I think it's something that could be tried. But the one that you actually insert the actual electrodes in the brain, that's really for very extreme cases, that people that tried everything else have severe, severe life-threatening problems. And in that case, I think you can go a little desperate and try more extreme measures. Yeah, well, opening up the brain and poking in some wires, that's, that's, that, that is fairly Desperate extreme. Yeah. Yes. But part of the story is the regulation in Australia is inconsistent across the states. Yes. So this probably brings us back to translational medicine. And is this uh, an issue that you have to face? I mean, with your, your research on translational medicine, is this primarily about the process of uh, and the procedures and the regulation and the testing and all so on? Is that the main thrust of what you're doing with that? That and also uh, creating a pipeline that facilitates translation. So that's one, one component of the pipeline is the regulatory one. The other one is the uh, workforce one. So having people who can really go from the lab to the clinic and be kind of a competent in both domains, it's a big challenge. And you tend to have scientists who work exclusively in the clinic, like as GPs, seeing patients, and other people work exclusively on the bench, and very often they don't even talk, so that creates another barrier. And in addition to that, you have the the issues of uh, methods, approaches. If you have a new treatment, how do you give it? Not everything can be given as a pill. So do you give things uh, in injection? Do you give in uh, small molecules? Um, like people make these little reservoirs that you can implant in the skin and the thing can diffuse through there. So uh, there are many issues of like delivery methods, uh, designing studies to show that what you're doing really works or not because sometimes there is a lot of confusion out there. You have a new treatment and then you don't even know if it in one study shows it works, the other one doesn't show it, and the public's very confused because of that. So uh, designing uh, studies and methods to analyze the studies, it gives you a very clear conclusion. So this pipeline of translation has many, many components. I think one of them is the regulatory issue, but it's not the only problem. Well, last week we were privileged to interview Australian living treasure Dr Fiona Wood, Mm -hmm. and in her own research she's been looking at how to treat burns with a so-called spray-on skin, but also a lot of the other facets about how to treat a burn. But uh, one thing she's done is formed this company, and in the interview she told me that one of the most challenging things she's had to do in her career is to take her scientific mind and convert it or, or, or put it into the commercial world. So is that something that you see a lot of? I mean, how in Australia and, and perhaps with research at John Curtin uh, are we able to translate uh, something from the lab into a, a commercial venture? Yes, and there is this concept of creating uh, what we call incubator companies so that they 
they serve as like the initial place where an idea goes from the lab to becoming a product before um, you know hitting like a big company so you need this kind of a smaller space where you can really bring the discoveries from the bench towards uh, creating a product and there is a lot of trial and error and different types of, of approach that you need to do but one thing which we are trying to foster is exactly that creating these uh, incubator spaces for people to make this transition but is it hard for the scientific mind is about openness and about sharing knowledge and about uh, exploration and taking risks and the commercial yes. world is about due diligence was the term yes. she used uh, safety and patenting and not letting anybody know what you're doing until it's mm -hmm. completely patented and under control in your own side so yes the two cultures are very different and the rewards let's say in the scientific world if you want to be promoted as a professor let's say if you are more a younger person and you want to become a professor it's the number of publications which is in a sense is the number of disclosures the number of uh, of public pronunciations that you have made and in the commercial world it's the number of patents and the number of um, essentially things that you've been able to keep under wraps for yourself so the rewards of both worlds are very different and it's a, a conflict of interest sometimes we have like you know partnerships between people who work in in industry and people who work in academia but it's a very tricky thing w walking the, the fine line between the two so what's your feeling about the uh, patenting legislation in Australia as a citizen I find it very strange that uh, a human genome can be patented it's a pre-existing thing and yet it's patented but you know there is a court it was in the US too and then there is a, a judge in the US uh, someone challenged that and the judge agreed with the challenger and that's being challenged in the courts right now so I think it's going to become um, a bigger issue throughout the world whether someone can patent what essentially something that all of us have which is our own genetic sequence it, it's, it, it does feel weird but what's your feeling more generally about patenting laws in Australia they are not the the kind of the worst in the world they are not like you know the, the easiest to deal with but I think that they are kind of a in between what could be the, the worst case and the, the best case scenario and I think that the the legislation here in general tends to be I think fair and to fo follow the international trends in this area so I don't know any case of something that kind of was patented here and no other country would accept as a patent or the reverse so it tends to go with the mainstream of what's happening uh, internationally now we're talking about changing mindsets so the scientist to the commercial person. Yes. What about the transition you've had to make yourself because you've come from a researcher and now you're the director of a major research institute? Have you found that a challenging transition? It is challenging, but I think it's very rewarding to be able to help other people accomplish and to uh, fulfill their potential. The, the John Curtin School is a very uh, unique institution in that it pursues research in many areas. So many of the um, medical research institutes in Australia, they have like one mission. So a very famous one like the Walter and Eliza Hall in Melbourne, they focus on immunology and related issues. The Victor Chang focuses on cancer. So different places focus on uh, specific uh, problems. And I, we are very fortunate to have a very uh, broad uh, constituency in terms of our scientists, and we address a lot of different problems. 
and that gives us a lot of technologies because different people are using different things. So if when when we one wants to do what we call now multidisciplinary research or cross-disciplinary research, we have the different disciplines there to be able to collaborate with. So it's been a, a very good experience. So where do you think your research will take you next? One thing which we are trying to do is to understand um, the chronic effects of drugs, specifically antidepressants, which is the drug we've been type of drug we've been studying the most. For uh, the listeners who are not aware of it, antidepressants are the most widely prescribed class of drugs in developed countries like the U.S. and here. Mm-hmm. So it's more than you know cancer drugs, hypertension drugs, or anything. It's antidepressants. And our research is starting to show that even after you stop taking them, there may be some long-term effects that we're trying to understand now. And what, what sort of effects are they? What we've shown that's very interesting is that if you treat animals with antidepressants and stop, so they are not, no longer taking the, the antidepressants. So what we do, backing up a little bit, we stress the animals first, so to simulate something similar to depression. So they, we give... Uh, place them in a stressful situation for a week then we treat them with antidepressants and then we stop the antidepressants and what we discover that's new is that if you give high fat food to the animals for several months they end up uh, bigger and fatter than animals that uh, did not have the antidepressants and that has been shown by a group just now because we did this different intervention which was to treat them with high fat foods and apparently you don't see this if you just give regular diet. But uh, when you expose them to antidepressants and stop, but then give high-fat foods chronically, which is, I think, what happens to many people who then just eat junk food chronically, they they end up bigger than what they were originally in the context of having been exposed to antidepressants. So th- there may be uh, a contribution of antidepressants to obesity if you don't watch a diet. Ah, so is it correlation or causation? That is, is it changing the behaviour or changing the metabolism of the body in some way? I think it's changing the metabolism of the body in some way because the behaviour, we study the behaviour, it's the same. So it's not that they are slower or uh, moving less in the cage and then, you know, spending less energy. They seem to behave exactly the same as the others, but they, uh, they gain the weight. So huh? it's more of a metabolic problem. So a stressed person perhaps... Is stress or depression? Because they're not really the same, are they? It's very difficult to say that you cause depression like a person has in a, in a rat. So we, we cause stress and we think it's similar enough to depression in this case. So uh, on that, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Dr. Julio Licinio. Thank you very much. And Pallavi Jane. And we'll be seeing you next week for more Science on a Sunday here on Fuzzy Logic. Catch you then.